Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's bap- John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who, would come, who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were all baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered in the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. And when, and some, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. Well, we are jumping into this passage tonight, and I realized this afternoon, this, this has been a bit of a rough week for me. This, um, <laughs> we said goodbye to my grandma this week. She passed away last Saturday, and, and uh, we had memorial services this week. And in that process, somewhere in that, I confused which passage I had scheduled to teach this week. <laughs> and so I am, uh, I'm actually revisiting some of what Nikolai taught on last week. That wasn't intentional. I haven't listened. I'm sure he did fantastic, and I trust him. Um, but the Lord's going to speak through the passage again. So, how many of you guys remember everything Nikolai said last week? Well, Nikolai probably does. Maybe not even Nikolai. <laughs> We're going to jump into this tonight. Um, but yeah, the, we had a memorial this week for my grandma. It was, it was good. It was a good time of reflecting. Uh, I had, you know, wasn't thinking about this, but you never know, like as a kid, my grandma raised me, and I never, grandparents, never thought, obviously, that I would be giving a eulogy. And, and uh, it's an interesting thing to do. The church that I grew up in, the church that she was a member of for most of her life, and to be able to speak in that church, it was, it was good. It was encouraging. Okay. We're going to continue through the book of Acts. And hopefully it's not a whole lot of repeat. As we've been moving through the book of Acts, we're now in chapter 19, moving into the city of Ephesus. And we're continuing... And now we're going to move from Apollos to back to Paul. We're, we're moving through this story. 
Ephesus was one of Paul's major stops. I've always thought it was really interesting as you look at Paul's journey through Acts and the, the way that he ministered in the different cities, how progressively longer his stays got. Early on, you remember in his first missionary journey, he didn't stay very long in a city. He would come to a city and he'd go to the synagogue and usually the next day he's getting chased out, beaten, or arrested. It was pretty um, eventful. He didn't stay very long. That process continued until Corinth, which we looked at a few weeks ago. He spent several months there, a year and a half almost in Corinth. And then in Ephesus, he really like plants himself. In Ephesus, he's there for a long time. Several years or a couple years he spends here, two years. And he writes many epistles from Ephesus and he, he begins to teach and work out really what it looks like for this community of, of disciples to practice this thing, this new community. He's heavily invested in this church in Ephesus. This section of Acts, sort of from mid-18 till mid-19, the chapter numbers don't break it up very easily. It's, it's Paul's third missionary journey. He's launched out again on this journey. And I think there's a couple really important things. There's important disciple-making processes that we're seeing developed in this section of Scripture. We see a variety of different teachers, different students, different contexts where the gospel is being proclaimed and people are, are learning and following and practicing the way of Jesus. Not just Paul or one of the apostles. Lots of different people are involved in this process. That's really intentional in the way Luke is preparing this for us. So chapter 18, 23, Paul launches out on this third missionary journey. This is all review here. And I'll try to go fast because this is probably now the third time you've heard this. He's launching out on his missionary journey. He stops in Antioch probably to give a report from his second missionary journey. He retraces his steps again, revisiting these churches. And I love this. He's going to Derby and Lystra and Iconium, these same cities up into the Galatian region, these same cities that he had visited. What this shows is something really, really important about Paul's heart is that he wasn't just like planting churches and then leaving and never to return. Paul deeply cared he had a, a burden for these churches to revisit them and to follow up and to check on them and to spend time with them. You remember before he launched out on his second journey, that argument that Paul and Barnabas got, got into, he said, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul's on this missionary, this third journey now, and he wants to follow up on these churches that were planted. His desire, ultimately, we know, is to go to Ephesus. He wants to go to Ephesus, but in the process, he makes many stops. Galatians 4 tells us that Paul agonized over the spiritual maturity of these recent Christians, these new converts. He says this, my little children... 
from whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. First Thessalonians, he says that he rejoiced in their progress of their faith. It says this, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown or of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy, Paul says, about these churches that he had planted. What we see here is that, yeah, Paul is this evangelistic, like, apostolic. He's going and starting new churches and planting churches, and he has mission at mind. But that's not it. He deeply cares about the Christian communities that have started the spiritual development, the, the, the healthy development of a local church was, was really important to the Apostle Paul. I think we, we should learn from that. There's, there's an example here. This is just Paul's journey. But we can learn that it's equally important to focus on the development of the church and outreach and evangelism. We, we can't have one without the other. So then we meet this guy, Apollos. I think Nikolai spent some time on this last week. Paul's traveling, and there's this man from Alexandria, this, this Apollos. He arrives in Ephesus, and he had an impressive resume. He's striking in his teaching abilities. He, he could command a room. But we know from the scripture, that Apollos needed further instruction in his faith. So this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, they remain in Ephesus for a time, filling in the gaps of his understanding. They spend time with him, filling in the gaps. Apollos was a well-educated man. He was a native to Alexandria, which was an intellectual center. Of, it was renowned for its famous library. Apollos was something probably pretty smart, well-educated. He appears to be a Christian. This is important for us. We're going to get on to this next section. Apollos appears to be a follower of Jesus. I say this for a few reasons. First, verse 25 of chapter 18 says that he accurately taught the way of the Lord. Okay, that's a clue. Second thing, the Holy Spirit energized his passion. The Holy Spirit was behind him. Luke says that he was fervent in the Spirit. The Greek word there is the Spirit. There's, the, there's an article which is important. It means it's the Holy Spirit. This is, the Holy Spirit was behind what Apollos was doing. This is in direct contrast to these disciples that Paul meets later on that we're going to spend most of our time focusing on. There's a different position. Priscilla and Aquila, I think they give us a really good model of how to deal with this guy, this, this Apollos who was this high-capacity teacher. He was well-educated, but he needed to be corrected. First, look at what they didn't do. What did they not do when they approached Apollos? doesn't appear that they called him out publicly. That's an interesting, I think we're, we're in a culture where we're quick to just call people out publicly. 
blast him on social media or call him out publicly. They actually took him aside and had a conversation, it appears. They didn't embarrass or shame him. They demonstrated humility and addressed him, but also demonstrated conviction and clarity. He needed to be taught more accurately the way of Jesus. He had a deficiency in his doctrine that needed to be addressed, and they addressed it in a way that honored Christ. They took him aside. We don't actually know, but perhaps in their home. And they gently explained baptism fully. This gentle persuasion is, is something that Paul talks about multiple times, is the way that we should engage people. All over the New Testament, that's the way that it's talked about, that we engage correcting doctrine. The idea here is don't, we don't need to be argumentative or critical in our spirit. We need to be open with our Bible and open with our heart and have a conversation. So they correct Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila, they correct his teaching. And I think sometimes as we read this story, it's easy to think this is just about correcting like a, a public speaker or a teacher or a pastor. But I think we all have times when we're our brothers or sisters or in, we're in our process of, of walking our life out with Jesus. We hear things and we see things in each other that are not in line with the way of Jesus. There's something we can learn here to have that conversation and, and direct them more accurately into the way of Jesus. Ideally, we would all have the opportunity to, to be making disciples, to be teaching people the way of Jesus. But this requires a, a close proximity. It requires a bit of a, a relational approach. It's not just go read this book and you'll be fixed. It's not quite how it works. This is not just like follow these steps, read this book, and you're good to go. Discipleship in this form requires a relational element, a level of engagement. But also look at Apollos' attitude here. Think about it. This guy is probably way more educated than this couple. They're tent makers. They're of the same trade as Paul. And yet he apparently maintained a teachable attitude. He listened and, uh, and took heart their counsel and made corrections to his teaching. So after this correction of his discipleship, Apollos goes on to Corinth. And in verse 27, he's powerfully teaching others. He's, he's moved on and is now teaching and Apollos waters what Paul had planted in the city of Corinth. But it's important to point out, Paul highlights multiple times in 1 Corinthians when he's addressing that church that the real hero is not Paul who planted the church or Apollos who came in and, and taught. It was God who gave the growth. The Lord greatly used Paul and Apollos in that church, but it was ultimately God who did the work. 
God receives the glory. And so while Paul is traveling and Apollos is in Corinth, Paul arrives finally in Ephesus. He arrives in Ephesus, which is a major stop on his third journey. And he begins to open the scriptures. He begins to exalt Jesus in three different places that we're going to look at. First, he focuses on this group of 12 disciples. That's all we can call them. They're disciples. Possibly of John the Baptist. We don't don't actually know. There's 12 disciples. The second group, like Paul always does, he goes to the synagogue. And the third group, he moves on from there to the lecture hall and begins to teach openly. So I want to focus mainly on this first group, this some disciples. So Paul comes to Ephesus and he meets this group of disciples. Alistair Begg says, you guys ever listen to Alistair Begg? And and talking about this passage, he says, Unfortunately, these people were not true disciples of Jesus. They were 12 almost Christians. Almost Christians. They resembled Apollos in many ways. In fact, it's hard sometimes to make the distinction because we're talking about baptism and which baptism and, and what's going on here. They resembled Apollos, but there's a pretty striking difference between them. Apollos, we know, taught accurately about Jesus. He was energized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through him. He was fervent in the Spirit. The same cannot be said about these 12 disciples. The same cannot be said about this group. And before I really get any further, I want to take a minute and just let's define that word disciple. Let's work through what does that mean. So Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds this group of disciples. For us, that's become a Christian term that means follower of Jesus, right? We think of the 12 disciples that Jesus had, 12 apostles. We think of followers of Jesus. Or maybe you think of somebody that you're teaching, a new believer who you're teaching the way of Jesus to. Jesus' commission to us, the, the Great Commission, right, was to go and do what? Make disciples. That's the very thing that we are commissioned to do is this, the sent people of God was to make disciples. Not, not plant churches, not make converts, not make church attenders, make disciples. So it's a pretty important word that we, we need to have some clarity on what that actually means. To be a disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus, the word disciple means student or learner, or it could be defined apprentice. It means to, to, uh, to follow after, a follower. Discipleship was a pretty normal thing in the early, early church in the first century. It was a normal process. It was the way information and, and job... Uh, Job knowledge was transferred. It was through like an apprenticeship. If you wanted to become a, a 
pot maker, a pottery. I don't know, what's that called? If you wanted to do pottery, sculptor, I don't know. You apprenticed under a master who taught you the way of doing that. Probably your dad. In the Jewish culture, there were rabbis who would travel and they would have a, a, a thing that they taught about and they would gather disciples who would learn their teachings. This was the normal way information was transferred. It was about forming some, somebody from something into something else. You're just a, a boy and I'm going to turn you into a fisherman. That's what discipleship is. You are this, we're going to turn you into something else. You're going to learn the way and be like the person that you're following. Forming into something else, the object of your discipleship. The vast majority of the uses of this word in the New Testament, the, the, by far the majority, there's only a couple examples, are, most of the uses are noun. Which means a disciple is something you either are or you aren't. It's not a thing you do. It's a person you, you, person you are. It's something you are. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a disciple or are you not? That's the question. We make disciples, right? We go into all the world and we make disciples. And we do that by inviting them into the process. Come follow my master with me. Come be like Jesus. He's worth Becoming like. Come be like him. We invite people into this process. In the first century, there was four main goals of this process of discipleship. It was to be with the rabbi, to be with them, to learn his teachings to become like him, uh, not just know what he said, but to actually become like them. And then to carry on his work. This is the process of apprenticeship. If you want to learn to be a fisherman, you spend time with the fisherman. You learn the ways of the fisherman. You become like him and you start catching fish. And then you carry on his work. And then ultimately you teach others to do the same. Disciples of Jesus, it's the same four priorities. It's the same four goals. The first and primary goal of a disciple of Jesus, this is what it means to be a disciple. The first thing, the first goal of discipleship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness and of connection to Jesus through his Spirit. Abiding in the vine, Jesus talked about over and over. Practicing the presence of God, Brother Lawrence. Dallas Willard said this. I like this analogy. He talks about the needle of a compass. He says this, The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. David knew this secret and wrote, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely 
This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. This is the point of the daily rhythms, by the way. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by the, our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits and not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needles of a compass constantly return to north. If God is the great longing of our soul, he will become the polar star of our inward being. The first priority is to be with our rabbi, to be with Jesus. The second is to learn his teachings. To learn the teachings of Jesus. I think we've lost a little bit of this at the expense of this, the, the truth, the reality that Jesus is Savior. We've, we've lost that he's also master and teacher and guide. We need to learn his teachings, not just his theology, but his teachings on how we are supposed to live. What does it mean? How do you live as a true human, as a spirit and dwelt human on the earth? How do we do this thing that we've been called to do? You have to look to the scriptures and look to the life of Jesus to learn that. Third, to become like Jesus. This is ultimately the goal of all discipleship, is to become like the object of our discipleship. To become like him, to, to think and act like him. And fourth, to carry out his vision in the world. To go and do as he did. One more Dallas Willard quote. If you guys haven't read The Great Omission, it's, it's worth reading. He said this, the greatest issue facing the world today, which is saying a lot, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. I love that quote. That's what we need. We need to learn steadily, consistently, how to be practitioners of the way of Jesus, how to apprentice in his way that in every aspect of our life we begin to follow him. I think the reality is People are disciples of many things. We are being shaped and formed by lots of things, into the image of lots of things, not necessarily Jesus, though. There are lots of things that have the, 
the compass needle of our heart is in tuned to other things. The object of our affection, the, the attention of our minds are being more formed by our news media, by social media, by influential teachers, by popular books, whatever it is. Those things form us. The reality is that we are disciples. We are students, apprentices, and practitioners. But are we students, practitioners, apprentices of Jesus? What we see here in our passage tonight is this group of guys, this group of people who were disciples. They had given their life to follow a master, to follow a way of teaching, a way of living, and to become like something. But it was not Jesus. Evidently, Paul observed something in this group. He, he, we don't know, Luke doesn't tell us, but he sees something about this group of disciples in their behavior, their demeanor, and it leads him to ask some important questions. It leads him to ask some probing questions. So they have this discussion, right, about the Spirit and about baptism and about Jesus. And he asks them, And to what baptism did you receive? He asks probing questions. What is really going on? Who are you really following? And the result of this, they, they're baptized. They're baptized into the name of Jesus. Paul lays his hand on them. They experience the Spirit's power and presence in this mini Pentecost that comes now for another time on this group of people. For sure, these disciples, if they knew of John's baptism, for sure they had some level of understanding or knowledge, or familiarity with the Holy Spirit. John spoke often of the Holy Spirit. But they hadn't heard, they weren't being formed into the fulfillment of John's ministry. Jesus was the fulfillment John Stott describes their condition like this. He says, in a word, they were still living in the Old Testament, which culminated with John the Baptist. They understood neither the new age that had been ushered in by Jesus, nor that those who believed in him and are baptized into him received the distinctive blessing of the new age, which is the indwelling of the Spirit. But after Paul explains the gospel to them, they are baptized by the grace of God, and they, they come. Later, Paul writes again to the Corinthians, and he, he urges them to examine themselves. This is what I think Paul's doing here. He's examining them, and I think he's encouraging us to examine ourselves. He says to in, examine themselves to see where, uh, if they were of the faith. First John lays out three potential tests that all, I think, point to these ways of being a disciple. First John points to that every believer should pass a doctrinal test. First John 1, 1 through 4, 2 and 2. Learn his teaching. 
That every disciple, every believer should practice an ethical test. Do you continue his work? Do you do what he did? Are you practicing the ethics of the, the kingdom? And an experiential test. Or have you been with Jesus? Do you spend time with him? Paul forces, he brings these disciples and he, he challenges them to examine themselves. And it leads ultimately to their conversion. I think one of the things we see here is that often there are people who are religious, they're disciples of something, they're practicing some form of an ethic even. That doesn't make them a Christian. They're not a follower of Jesus. Sometimes there are people who, retain, who attend church even. They might even be able to articulate the basic understanding of the Bible, tr biblical truths, but there's no sign in them there's no evidence that they're actually following Jesus. There's no evidence of regeneration happening in their heart. These disciples, who at first had this sense of external, this form of religion, something that stood out to Paul, Paul tells them of the gospel and they've been truly and fully changed. That's the beauty of the gospel, that even on religious people, disciples of other things, when we're confronted with Jesus, we can be changed. This week, as I was thinking about this passage, I was remembering this story of John Wesley's conversion. John Wesley was the son of a pastor, son of Samuel Wesley. He had a godly mother, Susanna. You guys know the story of John Wesley? Wesley attended Oxford. He became a double professor of Greek and of logic, the smart guy. He served at his dad's, uh, as his dad's assistant. He was later ordained in the church. He, he served in the church faithfully. While he was at Oxford, he was a member of the Holy Club. It's a good name for a Christian club a group dedicated wholeheartedly to pursuing godliness. He then became a missionary and went to, the, to reach the American Indians in Georgia. And after failing in his work among them, he was forced to return to England, and he wrote this. He wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? By God's grace, while he was in America, he encountered this group of Moravians. You guys familiar with the Moravians? Moravians come from this crazy guy, Ludwig, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Started this group, this place called Hernhut which began this 100-year prayer movement that launched missionaries all over the world. And these guys were radically devoted, thoroughly committed 
to scripture reading, to prayer, and to worship. They sustained a 24-7 prayer meeting for over 100 years and sent hundreds of missionaries. It's a pretty amazing story. So he meets this group of Moravians. And their spiritual vitality had this impact on him that changed him forever. He, he sought out one of their leaders, being thoroughly convinced of his own unbelief. This is now, you got to remember, the son of a preacher who grew up, helped his dad lead the church, went overseas on a foreign mission trip to, he was a part of the Holy Club at Oxford. But he had been so convinced of his own unbelief that he sought out a leader. And on May 24th, 1738, he says this. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Allersdale's Gate where there was, one, where there was a reading of Luther's preface to the epistle of the Romans. So they're reading Martin Luther's introduction to the epistle of the Romans. Does it sound like a good time? Said <laughs> About a quarter to nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, this is it, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt... I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given to me. And he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Prior to this experience, Wesley was a committed religious man. He was a disciple of something. He was practicing the way that was before him. He served in his dad's church. He traveled overseas as a missionary. He had theological knowledge, double degrees, but he was not, there was nothing actually that happened. There was no actual transformation that had happened. He needed an experience. He needed to experience and to embrace the reality of a loving Savior, of a living, loving Savior, who is real and at work. The reality is there are many disciples who are in the same boat. Culturally, socially, they look, they act, they talk maybe even like religious people. But is their heart, what, what did he say? I like that. My heart felt strangely warmed. Is there something that has happened to transform them? The question is, not do you believe the facts surrounding Jesus? Do you believe that he was a real person? I mean, yeah, you have to believe all that stuff. That's not the question, though. The question is, have you been made alive in him? Are you following in the way of Jesus? Are you seeking to be with him that he's ever before you? Has your heart been strangely warmed? Have you submitted your life to him and the evidence of the indwelling of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit working itself out in your life and in your community? 
So after this encounter with these disciples, Paul goes about business as usual. He goes to the synagogue, proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. He's preaching the Messiah. And he, he had already visited the synagogue before. He's there again, and he spends several weeks now, several months, proclaiming Jesus until ultimately their hardened hearts reject him. And he goes to this hall of Tyrannus, this lecture hall in Ephesus that, that he begins to use. And, and tradition says that what he would use it between the hours of 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., there was a, a break time that would happen in the city. And it makes sense because Paul was working as a tent maker. And so you have this picture of Paul, sort of a normal guy working a normal job. And they get this break in the middle of the day from 11 to 4. And he goes over to this public hall. And every day he proclaims the Messiah. And he teaches the way of Jesus for two years. Proclaims the way of Jesus. All sorts of people, Jews and Greeks, everybody would come. It's possible that so many churches, the churches that we read about in, in the book of Revelation, the churches that Jesus is sending these letters to, it's possible they all come out of this. So Luke shows us these, this wide range of people that give and receive instruction and training in the way of Jesus. Some people who knew Christ, they simply needed to be encouraged. And Paul visits them and strengthens them and encourages them, and he returns to encourage them. Others that maybe are genuine Christians but lack some doctrinal clarity on a specific matter like Apollos. And so we teach the way of Jesus more accurately. We guide them and direct them with patience. Still others who are religious or they're disciples of something but not Jesus. They have no actual understanding of what the gospel has and means to your life. And others, like in the synagogue, they just refuse to believe in Jesus. Isn't it beautiful that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is good news to that wide, diverse group of people, to all of them? The reality is the world needs, our city, our county needs us, Bible-believing Christ-exalting, spirit-empowered, prayerful people. It needs us to teach them the way of Jesus, to lead them and guide them to practice this thing that we call being a disciple, to invite them, say, you need to follow my master. He is worth becoming like. He is worth changing everything to become like this guy. He's worth following. The world needs us to teach them to be with Jesus, to learn his teachings, to, to 
know and to become like him. Not just know what he said, but to actually practice the things that he said. To live like he did and to carry on his work in the world. That's our commission. That's what we are sent to do. Point them to Jesus and teach them to follow in his ways. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. that you are so kind to lead us and to guide us. Even if it means giving up everything and going across the ocean to meet this crazy group of Moravians like Wesley did, that you are so kind to lead us to your purposes. God, I pray that you would make us aware of the people around us, that we would see where they're at, that we would invite them into this process of becoming like our king and our maker, that we would encourage them to look to Jesus, to set him ever before them. And God, that you would help us to do that, that we would fix our eyes on you, the only one worthy, the only one worth imitating. God, that we are not disciples of any teacher or any, any way of being. God, we were disciples of Jesus. Help us to become like you, to do what you did and to, to spend time with you and to carry on your work in our families, and in our city, in our jobs, that we, like those Moravians, would call people to the way of Jesus. That our love for the scripture, our love for prayer, our love for service, our love for mission would provoke people. There's something so miraculous, so beautiful, so beyond knowing about this person that we follow, Jesus. Come and follow him with us. Look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is able. Jesus, we love you.